It is great to see you. Welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Tim. I have the privilege of pastoring here. And uh, just to kind of tack on to what Jason said there, as we go to two services, we have so many young families in our church that we anticipate nine, uh, maybe significantly more full. And so here's what I'm asking some of you to do is to really think about and plan on coming at 11. Part of going to two services, we know, um, is letting go of some of our preferences in order to reach and disciple more people. And so we'd love to see you come on out, and I'd uh, love to see a bunch of you uh, decide on 11 as well. And hey, you get to sleep in an extra hour. Unlike those sometimes with little kids, do they sleep in? Some of yours do. Mine did. Actually, they weren't like super early, but I know some of yours like 5.30. They're up, right? Uh, now it's the cat that wakes me up early. So anyway, well, one other thing real quick, and that is just, um, I'm sure you've been aware of the news this week, and so just keep Florida, let's keep Florida in our prayers. And beyond that, the church has sent a gift down to Convoy of Hope that's providing um, hurricane relief for Ian and the people down there. And just want to let you know, if you if you have a heart to contribute towards hurricane relief, a great organization is Convoy of Hope. Uh, just go to convoyofhope.org. Just a great organization that anytime there's one of these kinds of events really around the world, they're, they're some of the first ones there responding. So uh, that's Convoy of Hope. If you are here for the first time or the first time in a while, we are preaching through the book of John. And we've got some work to do today. Uh, buckle up. It's kind of a long section, but we're going to try to finish chapter 12 here today. Now, to get started, let me just ask you, how many of you ever watched the classic like trio of Lord of the Rings movies? All right. How many of you might have read the books at some point? Yeah. And just to recap, for those that may not have seen the movies, um, basically the plot is there's a, the dark Lord Sauron and there's darkness growing in the land and he's created this one ring to rule them all. And you get these people drug into the plot who weren't planning on getting involved in order to save Middle Earth. But what's interesting to me about the movies is that it starts out, you know, the, the stars of the show, the, the, the heroes end up being hobbits from the Shire. And the Shire is this like idyllic, simple existence where the hobbits live in hobbit holes, uh, you know, these cool little underground houses. And um, these Shire folk, as they're called, are largely sheltered from, from the, what's going on in the rest of Middle Earth. They're hobbits, if you, if you, when we meet them right at first, they're all about their own little world. And so, you know, like the big highlights are who has the best hobbit hole and second breakfast. Anybody like second breakfast? Yep. So had a little second breakfast yesterday. Um, unplanned, but that, that worked out well. Uh, so anyway, and then they love their pints, too, if you've seen the movie. And, and uh, as it starts, Gandalf, who's the wizard, comes into town, and they have this big party and fireworks show. And it's all about what's going on in this little, like, shire. Now... As we're watching the movie, if you've seen the movie, you know what point of the movie you're in, right? They don't know. We've watched the opening, like the voice, you know, the crawl, as, as it says, you know, darkness is growing in the land, and there's one ring, and all of this. So we know the drama already. They're clueless in the Shire. They're unaware of the plot. They don't know what part of the movie they're in. 
the kingdom of the dark Lord Sauron is growing, whether or not they're aware of it. And it is coming for them. And they're going to have to choose a side. They're going to have to choose if they will play the part they are called and destined to play. And it will end up requiring things of them that they never anticipated and never expected. Now, if you've read the books or watched the movies, uh, they're fantastic, and they're written by J.R. Tolkien. And J.R.R. Tolkien was good friends with another famous Christian author named C.S. Lewis. And what's interesting is if, if the two of them had never met, there's a good chance we would have never heard of Narnia or Middle Earth because they encouraged each other to actually bring these stories to life and to actually write them. They were both literature, English literature prof professors in England. And they both, Tolkien and Lewis, they both believe that through myth and legend that their echoes of the truth of the gospel could be communicated in a way that could maybe slip past the barriers of modern secular people. In fact, they understood how much of classical literature and how many of the movies and the stories all draw from underlying themes from deeper gospel truth that we find in Scripture. In, in, in Lord of the Rings, what you end up seeing is these self-absorbed, clueless hobbits get caught up in a great story that's much bigger than themselves. Big themes of darkness and light and good and evil and of self-sacrificing love. You remember Samwise Gimchi? If I can't carry the ring, I'll carry you, Frodo. I don't care who you are. You got a little tear, like, at that point. Big themes. And in the text today, here's what we're going to see. Like the hobbits in the Shire are caught up in their own little world and kind of unaware of the bigger plot that's going on around them. What we're going to see is some people who should have been aware of what point in the movie they were, they missed the plot. In fact, they got their priority and purpose all mixed up. Instead of recognizing where they were, they thought they would hang on to their own comfortable little existence. As, and in doing so, they missed out on the most important thing that God was doing in the world. And here's, here's what I think we're going to see in, in this text for us, is that for so, many, for so many, it's so easy to live lives sort of oblivious to the bigger plot. I uh, sometimes like country music. Anybody else? You can admit it. Grew up listening to it, right? Working on a farm or a ranch for a while. And uh, the good old, like, country music then, right? And I don't know. I think I, I like driving around in my car and putting it on. It drives my kids crazy. But there's something about it that, like, reminds me of a simpler existence. I think especially throughout, like, the craziness of the last couple of years, right? You got your trucks and your dog. And it's just like... A more simple existence that it reminds you of. But here's what I think. Um, although it's good to pull away and break away from what's going on from time to time just to sort of reset, the truth is, I think for so many people, kind of like the Shire folk, it's very easy for our lives to be very small and very self-absorbed and very much all about our own little version of the Shire. It's very easy to be distracted and to go through life just 
distracted from what Jesus says is the deeper reality of what's happening all around us and from what Jesus said is actually the most important thing in life. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to dive in. We're going to be finishing up John chapter 12 here in just a minute. And we're going to move through it really quickly today. And so I just want to give you a couple sentences of context before we dive in. We, we are moving into this climatic final week of Jesus' ministry leading towards the cross. It's the week of Passover, one of the largest celebrations in, in the faith, in, in the nation of Israel. And, G, and Jesus leaves the small town of Bethany and heads towards Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story, the account in verse 12. It says this, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so John shows the people quoting a, a psalm, a messianic psalm, and then they tack onto that, the king of Israel, all this expectation and the waving of palm branches. This began um, a couple hundred years earlier at the liberation of the Maccabees. And as they uh, waved palm branches to welcome a coming king, a victorious coming king. And so you have this scene here. Normally we read this on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter the triumphal entry of, of Jesus. And we see this like they had been anticipating this moment for hundreds of years. You see John quote the prophet Zechariah, uh, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Like your king is coming not differently than you thought, but your king is coming in humility, not on a, a war not on like a white stallion. He's coming in on a donkey's colt with humility. He comes in in fulfillment of prophecy. All kinds of prophecies. They, there was so much anticipation right at this time that Messiah would come. As you look at history in the ancient writings in Judaism, there was so much anticipation that the Messiah will come any, any minute. And part of that, a large part of that, came from a prophecy that was written um, almost 600 or 540 years earlier by Daniel, the prophet Daniel. And, and he sees a vision, and an angel explains it to him and says, 70 weeks, and, and as you look at the interpretation, 70 weeks of years. And so uh, basically 490 years. And it says, after 69 weeks, a Messiah will come. Seventy weeks have been given for your people to accomplish all these things. And after 69 weeks, Messiah will come. And what's amazing is I've read these uh, scholars that have calculated this out because this is all going to happen from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And so as you go back and you see, and we can trace in history, the date that Artaxerxes decreed that Jerusalem, um, the wall, be rebuilt and many scholars, as they calculate this out, what they find is 483 years later, it lands on very likely this very specific day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It's absolutely stunning. In fact, they were so sure that this was the general time frame that the Messiah was going to come in 
that when you go and read some of the ancient Jewish writings a little later after Jesus, they understand, they missed from their perspective, because they didn't acknowledge their Messiah, Jesus, they say, we've missed all the times. In fact, one rabbi famously writes in, uh, he famously writes in what's called the Sanhedrin, some of the ancient writings. He says this, all of the predestined dates for redemption, the coming of Messiah, have passed. He says, the matter now just depends on repentance and good deeds. We don't understand why it didn't happen. Interestingly, Jesus, as he's riding into Jerusalem on this very day, Luke records, not John, but it says as he approached the city of Jerusalem, he weeps over it. He says, if if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. In other words, you, you missed me. You missed me. And then he goes on to make an incredibly stunning prophecy that this wonder of the world, this massive temple, and in fact, the the city of Jerusalem would be torn down, stone by stone. And less than 40 years later, in a stunning fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, um, they burnt the temple and the gold ran down between the cracks of these massive stones. And in order to get the, the gold, the armies tore apart, the Romans tore apart stone from stone. And Jesus said, if, you've only, if you'd only known the day, this is the day. But instead of recognizing where they were in the plot, the religious leaders were so caught up in their own little world. They were so caught up in the power and the prestige, even though they were under the thumb of Rome, man, their lives were pretty comfortable that they didn't recognize the day that Jesus came. Goes on to say in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and done to him. The cult, the humility, it looked very different than they expected. The crowd wanted to hail a glorified king, and Jesus is saying, I'm, I will be glorified, and John recognizes this. His glory is going to look different. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The first shall be last. If you want to be great, you be what? A servant. It looked very different than what they were expecting. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. He raised Lazarus after four days in the grave. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. (laughs) They're just like frustrated, as we saw last week, after now Lazarus, all these people that saw Lazarus are now believing in Jesus. And these Pharisees are frustrated. They missed the whole plot. The guys that knew Scripture better than anyone that knew these prophecies that should have calculated this out because they were so caught up in their little world, they missed it all. But John catches this the little prophetic statement that they make, the whole world has gone after him. And then John throws this next little section in, which if you're just reading through it, it feels like kind of like random. Let me, let me read it. It says this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was, 
who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Does that feel a little random? Hey, there's some Greeks that want to see you, Jesus. And he turns around and says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he just goes on with like a teaching moment. It feels a little random, but it's not. Something very significant is going on here. You see, all throughout the book, do you remember uh, chapter 2? If you've been with us for a while, Winston preached about the, the miracle at Cana, where his mom is saying, hey, do what he says. Like, Jesus, are you going to do something about this whole ran out of wine at the wedding feast? Big deal. And what does Jesus say? My hour has not yet come. Later on, it says they tried to arrest Jesus, and they couldn't. He just slipped through. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And all of a sudden, you see these Greeks. And what you have to understand, when it says Greeks, commonly, because Alexander the Great basically took over this whole area of the world, basically everybody in the Roman Empire spoke Greek. And so Greeks is just another way to refer to Gentiles. It's where the phrase, it's all Greek to me, came from, I think. (laughs) And so it says here, these are the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, in the ministry of Jesus, the Gentiles are seeking him. And in a moment, that Jesus switches and he says, my hour has come. See, there's deeper. There's, it's, a, it's a hint of the bigger plot. Remember, uh, about a chapter ago, he says, I have sheep that are not yet of this fold that need to come in. There's the deeper, there's the bigger story of what God's accomplishing in the world. Jesus goes on. He says this in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. In order to multiply a seed, what do you have to do? Plant it. You have to plant it. He goes on to say this, whoever loves his life loses it. You might love your life, but unless Jesus comes back, none none of us get out of here alive. I've checked. Rate's pretty close to 100%. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Man, that's strong language. That's strong language. What is is Jesus saying? Whoever hates his life? I'll tell you what this can't mean, because it goes back, and other times he uses the same sort of... hyperbole, this strong statement to say, like, in comparison to being a disciple, he says you must hate family members. Does he mean you hate them? No. You're, we're called to love our neighbor as ourself. Love others. It's, it's a primary theme. Here's what it means as you look at the Greek. The idea here is such a strong preference. If you remember a story from the Bible, um, Jacob gets tricked into marrying the older sister Leah when he's worked seven years for Rachel because he loves Rachel so much. And this same kind of terminology is used. Does it mean he actually despised Leah? No. It just means he just loved Rachel that much that everything else just faded in comparison. Everything else faded. 
I had a, uh, growing up, I had a special stuffed animal. Anybody else? Yeah, you know you did. Or a special blankie, right? Some of you, are, you were watching your kids do this right now. And uh, I, I had, it was a, a little gopher called Gophy. And I couldn't find pictures of it, and I didn't want to dig through the attic and st- see if I still had it up there somewhere. Um, <laughs> but Gophy was this little gopher, and it got all, like, dirty because I just carried the thing everywhere. And I remember this one trip. I just loved Gophy. This one trip we were on in my parents' orange Volkswagen van, and we left one town and went to another, and I couldn't find Gophy anywhere, and I was freaking out. Like, Dad, I can't find Gophy. We got to go back. And he's like, we can't go back. We got to get somewhere. And, ah, you know, tears. And, and uh, there, Gofi was like, he'd just fallen down by the side door in the van. I was like, oh, Gofi. Um, yeah, I loved Gofi. Uh, when I was 17, a friend stole Gofi. At that, don't worry, at that point, I didn't like care for Gofi that much, but it was the principal, right? So I stood, stole his like, um, the coil off the car so he couldn't start the car. I stole that, and I got Gofi back, so. <laughs> but the whole point is priority in your heart. That's the point. It's the p- primary place of affection. It's the priority in your heart. What has your heart? Does Jesus, does his kingdom have the primary place in your heart? Are you looking towards eternity? Are you getting, is serving him and worshiping him and loving him and living your life for him the primary priority in your life? That's the idea here. That's the idea. He says, he goes on, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. In other words, uh, just to be a servant of Jesus, you need to, to follow him. You need to know his teaching. You need to follow his words and instructions and order and prioritize your life and your heart in the way that he instructs. There, where I am, my servant, or there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That there are eternal stakes and eternal rewards. That following Jesus... There's eternal honor that comes from that. The place of priority in your heart. Um, Remember, like Mary last week, we saw this extravagant act of worship. We looked at this verse that says, what is our spiritual act of worship? It's not just singing. It's actually giving our lives. That is our act of worship spiritually, that we live our lives for Jesus. That we order and prioritize our hearts for his kingdom. That whatever we do in word or deed, we do it for him. That we, just, we, we serve in the place that he's placed us, whether that means changing dirty diapers or teaching school or digging ditches or serving, showing up. We do it for him. And we do it for his kingdom. Lord, give me opportunity. That's what the seed is. Unless a seed is planted in the ground, there's a dying to oneself, there's a dying to one's preferences in order to serve him. There's a sacrifice involved. But he's saying a life planted, his life planted is going to bear incredible fruit in the world. 
And when we follow him and plant our lives like seeds for his kingdom, it bears incredible fruit in this world. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Jesus goes on. And I find that, like, in, in John, we don't really have, like, the Garden of Gethsemane moment where Jesus is, is crying out to his Father. But we see that, that, that his heart is troubled. Hebrews tells us we have a high priest who understands what we've gone through, who knows how hard it is to be human, who knows what it's like to be tempted and yet was without sin. So he identifies with us. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glory, here's the theme of glory again. John picks up on it earlier. After he was glorified, the disciples remember, and now Jesus says, my life is about what? Your glory, God. And if what I have to go through, I'm not going to ask you to take it away because if this will bring glory to your name, I'll do anything. Glorify your name. Verse 28, the second part says this. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Uh, how many of okay. Anybody ever heard an audible voice? Nobody? Um, God does sometimes speak in this way. We see a couple examples of this in the scripture here. We see it with Paul's conversion different times. Um, I've never heard an audible voice of God. Uh, I had a friend, though. He was mowing his lawn. He was really frustrated with where his life was at, and he was kind of like, frustrated, crying out to God, and mowing his lawn while he was listening to gangster rap. And (laughs) he heard two words like out loud in his head, right? I I don't know if this was an audible voice or just an impression um, that set a new course and direction for his life and missions. He's like, he was so shocked. He like went in. He's like, I don't think Eminem said those two words. (laughs) It's not really all about music, about honoring God, right? But uh, it kind of changed his direction. But imagine, I mean, lots of us just struggle when we're trying to hear the voice of God. And for so many, it's like, through scripture, you put your finger down. Not a good way to hear from God, typically, right? You'll get all sorts of weird uh, things. (laughs) But here, God speaks in this audible voice. You see that at Jesus' baptism, and he says, I have glorified I've glorified it. In other words, attaboy, the way you have lived your life has brought glory to me. And he says, and I'm about ready to do it again. The sacrifice you're willing to make is going to bring me more glory than you can ever imagine. The fact that you're willing to plant your life like a seed and bring glory to God. And Jesus, I love it. There's so much humor when you pause and look at it because he looks at like the crowd around him who had heard this and some of them like, whoa, what was that, right? And Jesus goes, that, that was for your benefit, not mine. <laughs> In other words, I, me and the Father are one. I already know his approval. That was for your guys' benefit. He goes on, and, and, and pay attention, because here's where he's getting to the plot, the theme. 
the place they are in the movie. Here's what it says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That with what's about ready to happen here, there's going to be a dividing point. That the powers of darkness and sin are going to be judged on the cross The powers of evil, Satan, his authority is going to be removed. He no longer has authority to stand and accuse you before the Father if you're a follower of him. Because Jesus says he's covered. She's covered by my sacrifice. That he is a defeated foe who's lashing out because he knows his time is short in this world. But the victory has assured, the victory has been won. That there's a choice now that has to be made. Now is the time of judgment on this world. What he's saying, like awaiting the final time of judgment at the end, now is the time where you get to decide, am I going to follow Jesus or not? Now is the time when all the evil of the world Boom, the stamp. It's been convicted, guilty. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. When he is crucified, and interestingly, when he is raised again, he draws this idea. You see it back in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus too. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up. And now you see it here, where he says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, don't understand this as somehow universal salvation. That goes against the whole message of the book of John. What he's saying here is people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, I am going to draw to myself. That whosoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. That the invitation goes out to all of the world. Believe in Jesus and receive life. Believe in Jesus and receive life. I'll draw all people. And the Greeks, what were the Greeks doing there a few verses ago? He's drawing them already. And they're going to come. The fact that you and I are here, almost all of us, probably Gentiles, 2,000 years later, worshiping Jesus is a testament to what Jesus said. I will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die on a cross. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ must remain forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And Jesus, basically what they're saying here is we don't get it. It doesn't fit our our script, our our script of the movie. Uh, Ours went different. You were supposed to be like this victorious king. What are you talking about being lifted up? What's going on here? We don't get it. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Remember the prelude? John chapter 1, in him was light, and the light was the life of all mankind. Jesus says, The time to make a decision is here. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. You're missing the plot. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There's an opportunity, Jesus says. And the second part of verse 36 says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. We catch echoes of the prelude from chapter 1, where John is going to give us a hint. He says he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And you see this idea here where Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, 700 years ago, knew the people of God are not going to submit to God's correction. They're going to end up going into exile and prophetically seeing the people are not going to recognize their Messiah. But through that, the gospel, Paul sees it in this amazing way, through that, the gospel has gone out to the whole world. Isaiah, verse 41, said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory. And spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There is a compelling choice for us when it comes to our lives. Do we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Are we far more concerned about how people perceive us and see us in our little version of the Shire, in our little kingdom, than the bigger plot of what God's doing in the world? Are we willing to live into our lives into his glory, that we do everything, our lives are worship to him and for his glory? Or are we so distracted, we're just wrapped up in in our own thing, and we're not even aware of what he's trying to do around us in the world? In the last part of this chapter, this last little section, I'm just going to read through it quickly. Because Jesus will cry out one more time and say, make a choice. Decide what you're going to do. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Again, echoes of John 3. 16 and 17, for he did not come into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But here's the rub. It says the one, verse 48, who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
big question is, what do you do with Jesus? Just like John 3 says, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the one who rejects Jesus already stands condemned. There's a deeper truth. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is what? Eternal life. What I say, therefore I say, as the Father has told me. And no matter what else you do in life, the most important thing you can do is wrestle with the statements Jesus makes about himself. If you're just joining us, maybe here for the first time, go back and read through the Gospel of John. See what Jesus claims about himself. He's one with the Father. He's the way, the truth, the life, the only way to God. That he is the way to eternal life. That he is the plot. What you do with Jesus, it's the most important It's the most important question you can ask. He says, you have an opportunity for Jesus followers. I'm going to invite Winston up. We're going to close in a song. You have an opportunity to plant your life like a seed for him. And that doesn't just happen in big moment decisions where we choose to do something dramatic, go on a missions trip, start a church, start a ministry. No, it happens in the day in, day out when you get up and decide, Lord, today my life is going to be planted like a seed for you, for your kingdom. Make me aware of the opportunities of the conversations in the midst of this mundane day as I go through my work, as I go through all of this. Be aware and attentive to your Holy Spirit. Lord, today my life is worship to you. Let it be a sweet sound in your ear, Lord. Like incense we sang about, like, a sweet aroma, worship today. Are you, is your life being planted for him? There's a bigger plot going on. It's about his kingdom. It's about his purposes. Know what point you are in the movie between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, that he is coming again. And in that moment, the question, did I, did I die to myself, will be extremely important. Did, what, what place, what priority did he, did he have in my health? Did I love him more than anything else so that everything else faded in comparison? Oh, man, I would love for the answer to that on a daily basis in my life more and more to be yes. Because so many days I go, I am just so distracted and so caught up and the headaches and the hassles of today. And I just totally missed the plot. Where are you at on preferring the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? That's a hard one for so many. And the most important question you can answer is, what will you do with Jesus? As Jesus was going to a cross, that's the most important thing. You have the light. You ha- like the Holy Spirit is probably, I'm guessing for some of you in the room, just drawing you right now. But you have to choose to respond to him. 
You have to choose to say yes to him. Would you stand? He says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. And some of you right now, you feel him drawing you. If that's you, I just want to invite you. Let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. And whether in person or, or, or online, if that's you, just re- you can respond to Jesus with a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I cannot make it to God on my own. But I accept the finished work you did for me at the cross. I'll say yes to you. I want to follow you with my life. I want to serve you. Forgive me. Welcome me into your family. Make me one of your own. I want to walk my life out in the light. Amen. We're going to sing a song quickly, and then I'll come back up and pray over us. Let me just close by praying over you. And maybe... You want your heart reoriented, your priority towards him reoriented right now. If we could, just everybody in the room, if you're willing to, why don't you just place your palms in front of you open up, up towards him, just in a posture of receiving. Lord, would you just do a work in our hearts? Lord, we can be so distracted. Would you reorient our hearts and our lives? Would you make us aware of what you're doing all around us? Would you speak to your people? Would you just restore just love and passion for you? Let us live our life each and every day like a seed planted for you and for your kingdom. In the little ways as well as the big, Lord. Guide us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.